0: When I was reading the passage for tonight, I confess I struggled a little bit trying to um, make out what it was, what it was saying, um, and I looked it up again in the message, the message form uh, translation version, and uh, I thought it just helped a bit, so I'm going to use that now and we'll come back and read the NIV, I kind of feel like, it's like the proper version later on. So this is Colossians 1, 24 to 27 from the message. I want you to know how glad I am that it's me sitting here in this jail and not you. There's a lot of suffering to be entered into this world, the kind of suffering Christ takes on. I welcome the chance to take my share in the church's part of that suffering. When I became a servant in this church, I experienced this suffering as a sheer gift, God's way of helping me serve you, laying out the whole truth. This mystery has been kept in the dark for a long time, but now it's out in the open. God wanted everyone, not just Jews, to know this rich and glorious secret inside and out, regardless of their background, regardless of their religious standing. The mystery, in a nutshell, is just this. Christ is in you. So therefore, you can look forward to sharing in God's glory. Christ is in you, so therefore you can look forward to sharing in God's glory. And so, as promised, we come to um, Colossians one twenty-four to twenty-seven from the NIV this time. <clears throat> now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to, to, them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is, Christ in you, the hope of glory.
1: Thanks, David. Glory. What's that word mean exactly? Dictionary definitions give us an idea of the range of meaning. Glory means very great praise, honour, distinction, renown bestowed by common consent, resplendent magnificence, a state of absolute happiness or gratification or contentment, ultimate fulfilment or satisfaction the splendour and bliss of heaven. Have you ever experienced glory? You catch a glimpse of what glory feels like when you win the race, when your team wins the league, when one of your children does something absolutely amazing and you are so thrilled and proud of them. When you or someone that you love gets that first class honours degree. When you're filled with a sense of of well-being, that promotion, that success, when you celebrate some kind of triumph or achievement, glory is, it's a wow word. It's an amazing word. Something that consumes with wonder or delight. It's It's like being filled with light. It's everything being amazingly good. Nothing beats glory. And glory is what God has prepared for us. It's what God's got in store for us. We catch glimpses of it from time to time in in those experiences, but those experiences are transient and fleeting. We get moments of glory. Most of the time, life is pretty ordinary but the memories of those moments, we cherish them. They have the capacity to lift our spirits, put a smile on our faces. In comparison, the rest of life is generally hard work. So what would an eternal weight of glory be like? Wouldn't a state of perpetual happiness perhaps get a bit boring or monotonous after a while? The danger is that we try and kind of condense the hope of heaven down into one word and and making glory last for eternity, well that defies our comprehension. How can anything feel glorious after the first six months, let alone the first ten thousand years? The problem is we're trying to give expression to something that defies our understanding, our experience and our comprehension. Paul says elsewhere, words which we started the service in our first song, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no human heart has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. We catch glimpses of it, we hear echoes of it, but we can't take it on board. All we're promised is that the glory which is to come will make all, all the sufferings and trials of this life pale into insignificance by comparison. And when you consider what we're up against how bad this life gets sometimes you have to reckon that the glory which is to come is going to have to be pretty good actually to enable us just to forget all the rest of it and discount it as trivial. Perpetual glory. It's beyond comprehension because it's outside our experience it's not it's not part of what it means to be human. If we can consistently find a sense of glory in a relationship with someone we love or in something that we love doing or or being in some place we love to be, then we are privileged indeed. But God has made us capable, capable of experiencing moments of glory because glory is our destiny. And when we experience those moments of glory now, it's like a foretaste. Of what heaven will be like. And the reason we can't have perpetual glory now and we can't understand what it might be like is because we're not in heaven yet. Glory is really a divine characteristic. Only God is glorious in himself. Everything else which we perceive or experience is his gift to us, moments of glory. True glory is found in heaven, not down here on earth. And the glory of God, that surpasses everything else. It's dazzling, it's awe-inspiring, it's overwhelming, it's all-consuming. A friend of mine years ago once said that the divine glory would be a bit like seeing Genesis in concert. That dates the remark, but you get the gist. God wants us to share the fullness of his glory with him. But that would simply be too much for these flesh and blood bodies to cope with. We would be completely and utterly consumed by it. That's why St Paul says, flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God, nor shall the perishable inherit the imperishable, but we shall all be changed. We need to be, if we're going to see the glory, if we're going to share the glory. In 1786, a vicar called Henry Venn wrote a letter to his daughter in which he talked about that transformation. I I don't know the context of the letter for sure, but reading between the lines, it looks like his daughter might have been dying. And I've not been quite sure how much of the letter to read, but I think I'm going to read a, a sizable chunk of it. So bear with me. This is what he says. The body you now have is sown in weakness. It must be watched and tended continually to be safe. In weakness not only during infancy but always exposed to falls and bruises and broken limbs. In weakness so as to tire with employment and unless it springs like those of a clock be wound up every night by sleep it's good for nothing. In weakness soon reduced by disease to lie upon a bed not able to help itself and then placed in the tomb where it soon becomes the prey of worms. This, your body, shall be raised in power, strong and mighty, never subject to weariness, swift to move as with an eagle's wings, in no more need of dull sleep, the image of death to recruit its strength, in power to persevere without intermission in the great services to which it shall be appointed, and able to bear an exceeding and eternal weight of glory a very small part of which would sink the body of flesh into a spoon and fear, great as was seen in the beloved disciple who fell as dead at the feet of Jesus. Your body was sown a natural body, at your birth to be sustained like all other animals by the fruits of the earth and by the elements, fashioned to relish nothing higher than what could be seen by the eye of flesh and handled with the hands, so that its joys and griefs, fears and hopes and all its sensations are low and like the brute's. But it should be raised up, a spiritual body. That is one, every way accomplished to see, admire and delight in spiritual objects and exercises. No more a hindrance and clog to the glorified soul, but an aid and help, sinless in all its tendencies. All eye, all ear, all sense, respecting the visible works of God. And an excellent medium of conveying still greater blister than soul than it would know without the body. Otherwise it would not be reunited to its former inmate. The inhabitants of such an incorruptible, glorious body, mighty and spiritual, I hope to see my sons and daughters. And in such infinite dignity, dwell with the Lord our God, who hath formed us for himself forever. May this future, eternal existence be ever before our eyes, realised to our minds, and the desire of our hearts. Amen. And Amen. Such is the hope of glory which Paul says has been revealed through the glorious mystery of the gospel of which he was appointed a preacher. The message he was given to proclaim, Christ in you. The hope of glory. For many people the whole idea of heaven feels like something remote, fantastic, almost unbelievable. Because everything about this life is so real. It's so tangible. Well, heaven is just intangible. And the hope of heaven can feel correspondingly unrealistic. After all, how can we be sure that there is life after death? Because we've not been there to verify it for ourselves. And if there is life after death, how can we be sure that we're ever going to get there? And actually... Some people say the whole idea of heaven just diverts attention away from the serious business of making the most of this life, doesn't it? We don't need to be distracted by speculation about the life to come. This is what matters here and now. Yet for Paul, heaven was so real, it gave him the strength he needed to face and undergo all kinds of hardships and afflictions and sufferings, because he considered that heaven was worth it. He was taken up with the idea that Christ had identified with him in suffering, with him in sinfulness, with him in mortality, with him in death, to bring him out of death into resurrection, out of sin into righteousness, out of mortality into glory, out of suffering and into peace. And because Christ went through so much suffering in order to identify with Paul and save Paul, Paul himself was prepared to go through a huge amount of suffering for the sake of Christ to identify with Christ. So, if Christ died to save Paul, Paul was prepared to spend and give his life making sure that other people knew that Christ died to save them too. So, if being identified with Christ meant suffering with Christ, then he reckoned that there was a certain amount of suffering that he would have to go through until it was all completed. That's perhaps the least confusing way of understanding the confusing thing he said about filling up what was still lacking in his flesh in regard to Christ's afflictions. For Paul, the hope to come was so vivid and so real, it gave him the strength he needed to throw himself without reserve into the toughest and most demanding of situations and to cope with the suffering that came his way as a result. He was no escapist when it came to heaven. He was a realist, and for him, heaven was very real. What's the basis for this confidence? It boils down to what he says about Christ in you, the hope of glory. That was his experience. He could say to the Galatians, it's no longer I who live, but Christ living in me. Remember, talking about Christ, he was talking about Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, dead, and buried, but who rose again to life the third day. And that understanding of Jesus being living was not some abstract metaphor, as if the memory of who Jesus was and what he did lived on in the hearts and minds of his followers. No! Jesus alive with resurrection life. Death defeated. Christ passing through death and coming out the other side victorious and 100% alive. The hope of the life to come was not based on wishful thinking, but on the basis of his own encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. An encounter that changed his life dramatically and irrevocably and immeasurably for the better. Whatever advantages I used to have, he says, I consider them utterly worthless, garbage, trash, crap actually is the word he uses, compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul didn't shrink from death because he knew that death had no power or authority over him. The only power or authority he recognised were the power and authority of Christ to raise him from death and bring him to glory. Christ in me Christ in you? How does that work? How do we get to have Jesus living in us? The answer is by his spirit. And that's the key to what being a Christian is really all about. That's why it's so significant and important. It's not about being born in the United Kingdom or being christened as a baby or believing in God or going to church. A Christian is someone who has Christ in them. Because at some point, in some way, we've invited Christ to bring the presence of the living God into our hearts, into the very centre of our being. And a Christian is someone who makes Christ the basis of their life here and now, in the confidence that their faith and trust in Christ is the basis of their hope, hope of sharing in the glory of the life to come. Christ is in you now, he will get you to glory in the life to come. That's his guarantee. That's his promise. Christ in you, the hope of glory. If the risen Christ is in you, then his life is in you. And that life is stronger than death. And if you belong to him, then you belong to him for eternity. And so the hope of eternal life ceases to be a matter for idle speculation. It can become something that's real enough for us to stake our present lives upon it. Because make no mistake, if Jesus Christ is alive and he's living in you, then you will live because of him. And experience the ultimate reality that is the glory of heaven not a matter of whether you've been good enough or not, what religious ritual you've undergone. It's a matter of Christ having died for you on the cross and his being raised to life in order to bring you from death to life. He is the only way to heaven. But trusting him will get you there. So the whole basis for our confidence becomes Jesus. Jesus who died for us. Jesus who rose again. Jesus who comes as risen Lord and brings us out of death and into glory. Another nostalgic song. He lives, he lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me a long life's narrow way. He lives, he lives. Salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives? He lives within my heart. Not just what you read. Not just what you believe. It's Christ in you. By his spirit. The risen Lord Jesus right here. Because if he's there, you've got the hope of glory.